0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of This Show is All About You, a show about all the ways in which you and me can connect as we and what that means for all of us. As always, I am your host, JDK Winnekin. You can find out more about me at my website, which is wordsbyjdk.com. You can also connect with me on my social media feeds at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just look up my last name, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N, and you should find me Would love to hear from you, hear what's on your mind, uh, take suggestions for further shows, that type of thing. Uh, First of all, before we start, I want to make sure I thank uh, the sponsor of this show, Airway Science for Kids, for their continued support. Airway Science for Kids is a nonprofit based down in the Portland, Oregon area that provides life and career pathway opportunities for underserved youth in aviation and aerospace. And they do that not just by connecting students to the hundreds of possibilities for careers in aviation and aerospace. But they do so using a combination of in-house programs, virtual programs, and a series of connective relationships with other entities, educational institutions, companies, uh, other nonprofits, uh, community health providers, to connect students uh, to all the things that they need to build a better life for themselves and to better connect with their families and their communities. If you'd like to know about the amazing work that Airway Science for Kids does, You can check out their website, airsci.org, A-I-R-S-C-I.org, or you can reach out to them directly for information using the address info at airsci.org. And alongside that, I am excited that Airway Science for Kids will be continuing this journey with me on April 18th, which, as I announced last week, on April 18th, this show will become a one-hour show. And uh, for those listening live, it will move over to 880 uh, AM, K-I-X-I, in Seattle, Uh, For those of you who are listening as a podcast subscriber, nothing will change for you. It will upload, as always. There'll just be more of me (laughs) and some guests, uh, regular segments, and some other new stuff. So that starts on April 18th. And thanks to Airway Science for Kids for helping make that possible, along with Hubbard Radio. Okay. Uh, Welcome, everybody, to Episode 65, uh, April 4th, 2022. And uh, the title of today's show is the fascists next door. And I have quotes around fascists. The fascists next door. Uh, I am going to be talking again about Ukraine today, uh, primarily because as uh, Russian forces have begun to retreat uh, from around the Ukrainian capital of Kiev and around some of the areas in the north of the country, uh, what has been happening under in their occupation zones to civilians uh, is becoming more and more evident. And if you've been following the news at all, you know that uh, there are increasing calls going out for individuals from Putin on down to be prosecuted for war crimes, crimes against humanity, against Ukrainian civilians. And the uh, the evidence that is building up is becoming more and more persuasive by the day that indeed these are uh, crimes that have been committed against civilians. And I have a number of thoughts on that. And if you follow me um, on social media, you know I'm coming in today uh, fueled by— hopefully well-channeled fury about it. And not just because of the crimes themselves, but because of something that is truly nefarious that I think is behind it. And it serves as a warning for all of us. So with that in mind, the haiku for the day gives you an idea of where we're going. It goes like this. Words have the power to show us the truth or they can make nightmares real. Words have the power to show us the truth or they can make nightmares real. Uh, um, As I said, the, the crimes themselves are horrifying and if you're spending any time reading articles looking at images uh you know what i'm talking about uh but i'm not just angry about that i'm angry because this is the type of thing that has concerned me as a student and scholar of this part of the world in history and commentator for a really long time all of this is unnecessary and for me as a person who knows this part of the world uh these are these are real fears coming true and uh I wanted to believe that they couldn't happen in a post-Holocaust world, but uh, that is not true, clearly. Even though this is a very different thing than what the Holocaust was, it is still unnecessary destruction, murder, uh, traumatization of survivors, that type of thing. And what's really behind this, and it's hinted in the title, is the weaponized language of history that Vladimir Putin and his enablers have used to justify this and what that has produced. Calling, for example, the justification for this for months, if not years, from Putin's point of view, is that the government of Ukraine is dominated by Nazis, who are, just by their very nature, based on history, um, enemies of Russia, and ones who are interested in corrupting the Ukrainian people, pulling them away from their true kinship with the Russian people, and bringing them towards the decadence of the West, which, under long-standing Soviet propaganda, was really just fascism just a little bit prettier, right? And so this language is really particularly powerful in Russia. And so this idea that the, the invasion was going to be one of liberation of the Ukrainian people from Nazi overlords was something that Russian people were hearing on a daily basis from state-run media, which is the only media that's really allowed in Russia, particularly now. So with that in mind, I'm going to tie all this together, but you can likely hear the energy, maybe feel the energy I'm bringing to this because it is really palpable and profound for me. And I want to tell you where this all started for me, where this sense started. And it started with a three-year-old girl in a red dress. In December of 1993, I was a junior at what is now called Cal Poly Humboldt University in California. Back then it was just Humboldt State University, one of the farthest northern university in the California state system. I was a history major then, and I had long hair and earrings, (laughs) I was cocky as hell on the outside, but deeply sensitive on the inside to suffering, to what other people thought of me, uh, and doing a lot, like a lot of college students do, questioning a lot of my own upbringing, my own moral compass, trying to figure out what it is that I believed in and what I didn't, and... That was an ongoing thing. That was my junior year, beginning of my junior year. And in December of 1993, on a Friday night, I took myself and some, some of my roommates to see the new Steven Spielberg film, Schindler's List. Now, if you've seen that film, you know it's a Holocaust film. It's won, It won a number of Academy Awards, including Best Picture. And it is one of the most visceral viewing experiences that most people uh, can have. And it's, it's a very, very powerful film and a very important one uh, in terms of casting a wider eye on the crimes of the Nazis in the Holocaust. And uh, the film is about Oscar Schindler, who rescued 1,200 Jews from the clutches of the Nazis during the war. Uh, It's not entirely historically accurate. There's some creative license. There's some blending together of certain scenes and events and and individuals for the sake of storytelling. But uh, it is a It is a masterpiece on a lot of levels. And if you've seen the film, you know it's all in black and white. And the three-year-old girl in a red dress that I'm talking about is the little girl who appears in that film, and she is in a red dress, and she is the only character that appears in color in the film. And she stands out boldly, clearly, heartbreakingly uh, from the black and white background. And that's on purpose. And in the film... It's the sight of her and later the sight of her dress in a pile of bodies because the Nazis murdered her and her family that triggers Oscar Schindler to take the moral stand that he does. And, of course, visually that red dress was meant to shock us, too, and to highlight this little girl amidst that black and white to make the individual stand out. The film tore me in half. I went home. And it was late and I made, I'll never forget this. I made a can of chunky soup. And I sat down on my couch, not even bothering to pour it into a bowl. I was so dumb. And I stared at it. And I said out loud, I have soup. And I just started to cry. Part of it was an emotional release from the film. But part of it was a stark realization of what I was experiencing. The contrast was brutal. I felt in that moment so blessed to have that and also so convicted that I had taken an enormous amount of things for granted in my life. I felt relieved that it wasn't me who had ever had to face that, but then also disquiet that I was thinking about me and not that girl in the red dress and the millions of real people that she represented who had died and had gone through the horrors of what the Nazis had unleashed in Europe. And not just the people who died, but the people who witnessed it and survived it and the effect that that has had on them. That image of the girl in the red dress and me with that, that pan of soup, it's an image that has stuck with me. It's, and it it helped drive me, it helped focus me around some of those moral questions. And that larger moral question was, first of all, humans matter. <laughs> and maybe that's the commonality that I care about the most. Not so much about the things that make us different from one another, but maybe that, that commonality. But I also wanted to understand how in the name of anything holy, this kind of thing could have happened. So I dove into the study of Nazism, Nazi Germany, but first as an undergraduate then a graduate school, into the history of the Soviet Union, into the Holocaust, World War II. And the image of this little girl in the red dress, this individual, stayed with me as I had to absorb in conversation after conversation, book after book, the sheer numbers of people who died under those In those things, Nazi Germany, in the Soviet Union, Holocaust, in World War II, particularly in Eastern Europe, those numbers get so big that it becomes easy to lose sight of the individual stories, the individual cost in a way that can keep us connected to it. It just it just numbs us out after a while. And so that little girl in the red dress has helped me ever since never lose sight of the individual in all of these questions and in everything that I do. It also helped me understand why the longstanding call of never again, quote unquote, among Holocaust survivors was such a moral imperative, not just for them, but for me and these generations. But also, as time went by, I became increasingly convinced for subsequent generations, because the margin for error of what we can do en masse to human beings in certain circumstances is very thin. And what we're seeing in Ukraine on some level is a realization of that in the 21st century. And honestly, I'm disgusted with it. As time went by and I studied all of this, in all the classes that I took, in the hours of mentorship I had with professors, the even more hours of discussions I had with peers and friends and other scholars in grad school and elsewhere, convinced me of all of these things. But it convinced me that particularly when we're talking about and using terms like Nazi, fascist, communist socialist words matter these terms mean things these terms mean things and to use them out of context their historical context in the present to advance any political or social cause is not only wrong but it's unjust and it is downright dangerous and what we're seeing in ukraine is just an example of the end of that road and who's at the end of that road dead innocent civilians Well, how did all this happen? Let's bring this into the present. How did all this happen in Ukraine? Well, the Russians are not the first military force in history to turn their frustration at their futility and their defeat onto innocent civilians among them. History's rife, sadly, with examples of this. Just a couple of the more visceral ones. In 1937... The Japanese military, when they pursued the Chinese army from Shanghai to Nanjing and finally encircled them, embarked on one of the most ines- indescribable mass acts of violence in history, the so-called Rape of Nanjing, where they brutalized hundreds of thousands of people in the cruelest of fashions, primarily because they had not taken Shanghai as quickly as they thought they would. And that frustrated and embarrassed army took out their fury and their wounded sense of honor on innocent individuals because it was easy. The same thing happened in Eastern Europe, both when the Nazis moved east and then when the Red Army pushed them out west in 1941 and 1944, respectively, and visited horrific violence upon civilians, particularly those who resisted. Absent from Putin's version of history is any mention of the rampage that Red Army soldiers went on against German women and children in German territories as they occupied Nazi Germany. It's for reasons like this that when I hear words, whether Putin's using them or they're being used in our own political and social lexicon, people using terms like fascism and Nazism, communism, socialism, it infuriates me. Because it takes them out of their historical context that were real things. Fascism, first in Italy, then in Nazi Germany, but also existed in places like Spain under Francisco Franco until 1975. It existed elsewhere. All have some commonalities, certainly. But they're very distinct to their historical time and historical place. And in the case of Putin's use of the term Nazi or fascist to describe the Ukrainian government, it's just simply not true. There are far right elements, certainly, in Ukraine, including in its government. But that's no different than pretty much every other country in Europe and increasingly in the United States and elsewhere. Far right elements exist. Are they fascist at their core? Maybe, maybe not. But Here's the thing. It does, somebody doesn't have to be a fascist or a Nazi or a socialist or a communist to be dangerous to the liberal democratic order. That's why it's not, pro, it's not productive to compare Putin to Stalin or Putin to Hitler. Putin is Putin. On his own merits, on his, in his own actions, in his own beliefs, is where the answers are really to what drives him and maybe the answers of how to stop him. Everything else clouds the picture. And so it's something that I have talked about with students, peers, and others for a long period of time. Here's the thing. True card-carrying Nazis, true card-carrying communists tend to be proud of the fact that they are those things. Not always, but a lot of the time. And if they aren't open about those things for strategic reasons... There is more than enough evidence, as someone knows where to look, that they may or may not be one. And then, of course, begs the question, what if they are? What does one do? But simply labeling one side that you are against in an argument as, well, they're just fascists or, well, they're just socialists. It's counterproductive. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of air. It's a waste of space. It's a waste of energy. At its best, at its worst, it makes this type of thing that we're seeing in Ukraine possible in the right circumstances, led by the right people, at the right time. And in the end, none of this, none of those name callings, none of those things matter to the people who've just been gunned down, or killed in their homes, or pulled out of their homes and exiled to eastern Russia. None of those things matter. What I learned and what I still live by is basically this. Whether we call it fascism, Nazism on the political right, communism on the political left, which is at the extremes of, those, of the political spectrum, it seems to me the basic thing here is that targeting anyone on the basis of their race or their class or their political affiliation or whatever piece of identity they have for persecution and elimination are all the same in their danger to civil society, to their danger to innocence, and their danger to common humanity. No matter what the angle, no matter what the name, History has shown that those particular isms, communism, fascism, Nazism, are murderous, destructive, needless, and to me, antithetical to everything that is truly moral, truly human, and truly divine. Period. Hence, anything or anyone willing to engage in those things, even if they don't call themselves that. are standing opposite to the things that I think true, that truly are natural, human, and divine. Peace, freedom, acceptance, connection, community. Those are the things. Now, there's a lot of debate going on right now about whether or not what's happening in Ukraine is genocide or not. Time will tell. As I said, it doesn't matter to those people who've been killed or the people who had to see it or the people that are having to live through it. doesn't mean it isn't important to figure out. But for the people, Ukraine's kids in a red dress, it doesn't matter at all. Putin's language, I said in one of my Facebook posts, Putin's crimes against history, his misuse of history, those crimes against history are what are making these crimes against humanity possible. And it doesn't really matter if Putin is a fascist himself or not. doesn't He isn't Stalin. He isn't Hitler. He isn't Mussolini. He doesn't have to be. A lesson we should all take to heart and pay attention to when we hear or encounter people or individuals or figures who seemingly are interested in dividing everyone, labeling people who disagree with them as enemies of the people, We should pay attention to those things. And if we find ourselves that those are people that tend to be on our side of the argument, I would encourage all of us to take a really, really good look, if that's the case, at our own political, moral, and social compasses. Because something is rotten there, and I don't care what side of the political spectrum you're on. I'm just going to let that sit for a minute. Because all of this underscores and should underscore why words are powerful. And why they can be so dangerous to innocent people. Putin can use the language of Nazism because what better way to seize the moral high ground if you're a Russian leader than to label your enemy a Nazi? Because anybody who's going to challenge you on that can easily then be labeled as a Nazi sympathizer. But if you flip that around with calling somebody a communist or a socialist, and it's not true, to defend them, you risk being called (laughs) a socialist or a communist. And it solves nothing. And so what's happened as Putin's complete misuse of history and its language? have led to catastrophe militarily for him. And to varying degrees in varying places, soldiers are recognizing that this war wasn't going the way they thought. Who suffers? The Ukrainian people do. Because Putin said, we're liberating them. Well, they didn't act like liberated; They weren't grateful. So therefore, there must be something wrong with them. So I would ask Putin and his enablers, so are these little kids and their mothers and their grandmothers that they're finding in mass graves in Ukraine, are they Nazis now too? Did you do such a great job in your occupation of figuring out who was a loyal Ukrainian to the Russian state and who was a Nazi that you got it narrowed down to kindergartners? My guess is no. My guess is The lies came home to roost, and rather than face them and own them, bullets flew instead. These are crimes against truth. Massive ones. But so are labeling people around these historical terms when it is not merited or warranted. It may not have the same magnitude, as what we're seeing in Ukraine, but it's on the same road. And I, for one, do not want to be on that same road in any way, shape or form. <laughs> I'm so angry. I can barely see straight at this point. You know, and it's it reminds me of so many historical examples that are strange. You know, the, the term anti-fascist, gets thrown around and misunderstood in this country today, just as a way to wrap up. Primarily because there's a far-left organization known as Antifa that bases their name on anti-fascism. And what's interesting, and again, left out of Putin's historical narrative, is the fact that the Russians, when they were in the Soviet Union, used that term more than anybody else. As I said, they saw the West as fascist, heirs to Nazism, To the point that in 1961, when when East Germany, with Soviet support, put up the Berlin Wall, they called it the anti-fascist protective rampart. The idea was it was going to keep fascists out, when really the truth of it was the Berlin Wall was meant to keep people in Eastern Europe and Russia inside, behind the Iron Curtain, to prevent a brain drain. That whole story is sort of left out of this mix. And. Also wasn't true. (laughs) Because anti fascist with a capital A may be a name. But guess who were anti fascist, meaning they were against fascism, with a little a? How about every American troop that landed in Normandy or fought in Italy or in North Africa or in Asia against fascism? Little a. Whether they were on the political left or political right didn't matter because they were fighting against fascism. A number of those troops would go on to fight against communists in Korea as well. So anti-communists. See, you can be both without the capital A. But we tend not to dig into that. We tend not to understand that these words matter or where they come from. And we tend to take our definitions from the people who already agree with us. Rather than taking a more sober, regular, honest look At ourselves. So. For me, whether it's Putin or your next door neighbor. Who probably isn't a fascist. Anyone throwing around the ideas from the right. Of either that their ideas are true patriotism or nationalism. Or on the left that their ideas are about egalitarianism or true equality. You might want to make sure you understand the historical truths of the movements of fascism, particularly on the right, and communism on the left. Because unless you are embracing open violence to achieve those things, you're not one of them. But if somebody is, they're closer down that road than you are, and that should be enough of a concern. It shouldn't have to get to hundreds of Ukrainian girls in little red dresses, metaphorically to drive home the point. You might still disagree with your neighbors on lots of things, but you won't have turned them into the monsters next door with all the fear that that can produce and what that fear can then make possible. And again, the end of that path is what we see in Ukraine. Next week, we'll talk a little bit about what we can do about that because I think there is something we can do, but it is going to be a long road back. Until then, I really appreciate you Jumping in for this episode of This Show is All About You. I'm your host, JDK Winnikin. Check me out at JDK.com. Let me know your thoughts. And until next week, everybody, chins up.